so much better than anyone or anything else. And as I was preparing this message, I thought the timing is just perfect because we are celebrating, whether you realize it or not, this is already the second Sunday in Advent. And together with that, it is Communion Sunday. And our text focuses on why Jesus came. So this morning, the Lord helping us, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse, believe it or not, yes, only verse 3. Now, I'm sure some of you are wondering, Pastor, if we are going to go through Hebrews at this pace, I might be celebrating my 80th birthday by then, right? <laughs> There has just been so much for us to consider in these first three verses that I just could not skip through them. But as we're looking into the first chapter, I believe the next message will go more quickly. So thank you for bearing with us. The title of my message this morning is He, that is Jesus, Sat Down. And I'm reading our text from both the King James Version and the Voice Translation. This mic seems a little hot, and you know me, I get loud. I don't want to hurt your ears this morning. Okay, reading from the King James Version, or the New King James Version, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm also reading from the voice translation. This is the one who imprinted with God's image, shimmering with his glory, sustains all that exists through the power of his word. He was seated at the right hand of God once he himself had made the offering that purified us from our sins. Holy Spirit, you have written this word and now we ask you to write it upon our hearts. Lord, I pray for the anointing of God to rest on these lips, for I have nothing to say apart from your enabling. So I ask for that anointing this morning on my lips and on the ears of every listener in divine presence that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today and bring our lives into alignment with your truth. In Jesus' name we pray and we give you all the glory. And everybody said, amen, amen. This text that we have read this morning, verse 3 is just dripping with glorious truth as to why Jesus is better. You know, as I've been studying Hebrews and this theme in particular, I've come to realize that as long as we are Christians, as long as we are walking with the Lord, every day of our life should be a new and a fresh revelation concerning this reality that Jesus is better. 
The last time we were in Hebrews, we spoke about why Jesus is better than the prophets. And we discovered that the answer to that question is very, very simple, and that is this. Jesus is better than the prophets because Jesus is God. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He's not a mere man like were the prophets. And the last time we were in uh, chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, we considered the five proofs of the deity of Jesus. Now in verse 3, three of those are repeated. And they are, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus shines with the same brilliance, the same degree of glory as does God the Father. Secondly, Jesus is the precise expression of God's very being. When you see Jesus, you are looking at God. And thirdly, Jesus sustains and upholds all things. How? By the word of his power. You know, the, the scriptures teach us that God is omnipotent. And in his omnipotence, all he needs to do is say the word, and it's done. When you and I need to get things done, we need power, don't we? We need energy. We need elbow grease. And after we're finished, we're drained. But not God. He is omnipotent and all-powerful. And the scriptures teach us that by the word of his power, this universe and all that is in it, including you and me, are held together sustained by the word of his power. I don't know about you, but for me, it's so wonderful to know that when I feel like I'm falling apart, Jesus is my sustainer. He puts me back together by the word of his power that quickens this mortal body and pours strength and grace into my life so that I could continue to walk faithfully with him. So as we've been looking at these statements that declare the deity of Jesus Christ, they perfectly describe why Jesus is as much God as God the Father is. So also is God the Son, fully God. But in verse 3, we also see that Jesus is also fully man. Second Sunday of Advent, what are we celebrating? Not Santa Claus, not Christmas trees, not jingle bells. We are celebrating God became man. We are celebrating God in the flesh. I think it was Luther who said, I cannot even speak the word Bethlehem without tears coming to my eyes as he reckoned upon the reality that this almighty God who was the creator as we learned in Hebrews of the universe was willing to condescend to come to this earth as a baby to be born in Bethlehem's manger. Why did he become fully man? So that he could be that 
perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Only God could bring the atonement, bring us back to God. So it took God the Son hanging on that cross to bring us back to the Father. But it took God the Son as a man to suffer in his human body so that he could take the place of suffering that you and I deserved, that you and I should be suffering because it was our sin that nailed him to the cross. So it's this combination of being fully God and fully man that makes him so uniquely capable of taking away the sins of the world. And that brings us to the second part of verse 3 that tells us why Jesus is so much better. And so we read in our text, he had, how? By himself purged us from our sins and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And that is our focus for this morning's message. This verse is just pregnant with so much truth. And God helping us this morning, we want to uh, try to unpack that truth. I love uh, the words of Matthew Henry as he considers this passage of Scripture. And he says so eloquently, the author of Hebrews takes us from the glory of the person of Christ as God now to the glory of his grace that he brought to us as a man. You know, grace can better be defined in no other way than as it's defined here in this verse of Scripture. What is grace? Great riches at Christ's expense. And Jesus himself took upon him our sin so that our sin could be washed away, purged away, purified, though your sin be as scarlet by the blood of the Lamb, that sin can be made as white as snow. Jesus became that Lamb of God who shed his blood to take away our sin. You know, doesn't the Bible tell us that as the Lamb, he was slain before the foundation of the world was laid? Before this world existed, before you and I ever existed, before the universe was, in eternity past, God knew he would create man and man would sin. He wanted man to be faithful to him. He wanted man always to have a vibrant relationship with him, but he gave us a will because he did not want a robot. God does not get glorified when robots do whatever they're programmed to do. God gets glorified when by an act of our free will, we choose to say yes to him. We choose to say, Lord, I want to love you and not the world. Lord, I want to lay aside and put away that sin because it grieves you and it displeases you. And I want to walk in holiness and in righteousness because I want to love you with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and with all my strength. 
So God devised the plan in eternity past as the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saw what would took place. And Father said, Son, will you be willing to become a man? Because it is only as you becoming a man will you be able to redeem the world and bring men back to me. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, unlike in the Old Testament how was sin dealt with, the priests on a daily basis made sacrifices day after day, not only for the people, but first for themselves, because they themselves were sinners. And the Bible tells us that in the old economy, those sacrifices never ended because they could never do the job Sin always had to be atoned for over and over and over again. But whereas Jesus, when he offered himself as the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God, his blood that was shed was efficacious for all of time and all eternity. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, for by one offering... Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now that's a verse you want to wrap your mind around. Because I don't know about you, I falter and I fail. And I need to repent over and over and over again. Hopefully not for the same sin. Because true repentance is saying, God, I'm sorry enough to stop. I'm sorry enough to make a change. I'm sorry enough to make an about face. But we're still in this flesh, and guess what? Saints, I hate to disappoint you, but as long as we are in this flesh, there is that utter possibility, and may I say probability, that we're going to sin. But thanks be unto God, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a lawyer who is pleading our case and saying, Father, my blood, my blood is efficacious for all time and for all of their sin. Now, don't think for a moment, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid, Paul says, and God forbid anyone who says that they are a disciple of Jesus Christ would have the audacity to think or believe, well, I could keep on sinning because look what the pastor just read. By one offering, he has perfected for all time. See, God sees the efficacy of his blood as so perfect and so complete that we are seen for all time as perfect. As long as when we're in this flesh, when we falter, we confess our sin because he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood will always, 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 always prevail. Sin is a stain that cannot be washed away by our religion, by our rituals, by our good works. It's only by the precious blood of Jesus. It's only the blood that can deal with sin. It's only the blood that can deal with the shame. It's only the blood that can deal with the guilt of sin. And uh, that, that wonderful hymn says it so well. No, sin had left a crimson stain. 
but he washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. And so the Hebrew writer says so well, after he had by himself purged us from our sins. See, Jesus is so much better than the prophets because he just didn't proclaim the word of God. He did the will of God. And there's a world of difference between the two. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that the prophets were not righteous men, but they were men who sinned. And the requirement for purifying sin was the blood of one that is spotless and holy. The cleansing from our sin came as a result of Jesus being willing as he sweat great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And when he, when, when he contemplated the sin of the world crushing him, when he contemplated the shame of, uh, and the humiliation of all that it meant and the pain and the torment of the cross, his holiness, his purity. Can you imagine becoming a murderer, becoming a fornicator, becoming an adulterer, becoming a hater, becoming one who is jealous, becoming one who is covetous, becoming one who's a pervert, who's evil to the core? That's the Son of God. He became sin for you and me so that we might be made the righteousness of God. And it happened because he was willing to say yes. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Is it not a mind-boggling thought this morning, Christian friends, that the creator, the sustainer of the universe became our sin bearer. You know, to create the universe, he only had to speak a word. To maintain the universe, he only has to speak a word. But in order to cleanse us from our sin, he had, he had to be nailed to that cross. He had of necessity to be nailed to that cross. And he did it willingly. He took what should have been ours. He took the nails. He took the beatings. He took the shame. He took the spit. He took the insults. He took the torment of the cross. Staggering reality to think that the sovereign Lord would stoop to become the sacrificial lamb. When I think about that, I also think of that glorious hymn written by Charles Wesley who wrote it in the 1700s on the anniversary of his conversion. He's thinking about that glorious day when Jesus Christ came into his heart, saved him from his sin, gave him a new complete life. And he penned these words that are still being sung in churches today. Not as many as they used to be but they are still being sung. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, to him for death pursued, 
amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Would you indulge me to read another verse of that hymn? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy, all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Aren't you thankful? It found you. It found me, the marvelous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses in sin when God commended his love toward us and sent his son to die in our place. And so during this Advent season, I know Christmas has a way of overtaking us. The hustle and the bustle of the holiday and the lights and the glitter and all that makes the holiday so festive can rob us of the reality of Christmas as to when we look at the nativity scene Kathy was looking for them and she said, it's, it's hard to believe. You can't even find them in catalogs anymore. This is the way America's going. We're not celebrating Christmas because it's the birth of Jesus Christ. We're celebrating Christmas because we buy gifts and we want to sing ho, ho, ho. And we want to honor Santa Claus. But when we look at that Christmas nativity and see that beautiful baby Jesus. Let's remember why he was born. You know, when we bring children into the world, we look at that tiny, precious new life, and we think of the potential, we think of the blessing, we think of the fullness and the fulfillment of the life that they will live and enjoy. When we're born, we're born to live. Aren't we? When you see your children and your grandchildren and some of you even your great-grandchildren, you're blessed with this new life that's going to live, to live to be happy, to live to be fulfilled, to live to make a contribution and hopefully to live to advance the kingdom of God. But do you know why Jesus was born? He was born to die. He wasn't born to live. He was born to die. His purpose in coming to earth was to die, to be that sacrifice hanging on the cross. For without that sacrifice, there would be no kingdom of God that he brought with that sacrifice so that we could live in a new realm. I know that we're living on this earth, but really we're not. We're just pilgrims passing through. <laughs> We're pilgrims, we're here to do the will of him who sent us here for a season to live for him and to glorify him. Now I want to draw your attention to an important word in verse 3. The scripture says, after. You see that word? After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. He did not sit down until after he accomplished why God sent him to this earth. That word after is the reward that God brought to him after he did the Father's bidding. Did you know that the idea of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God is only found in the scripture 
not concerning the pre-existent Christ. You never see that verse of scripture concerning the pre-existent Christ. You only see that scripture concerning he being seated at the right hand of God after he came to this earth, died, rose again, and ascended back into heaven. Then he was seated at the right hand of God. And there's just a little truth and application here that I pray that we would all take to our hearts. We live in a microwave society and we all want microwave blessing, microwave answers to prayer, microwave, God, this is what I need, give it to me now. See, God is not so interested in gifting us as he is in conforming us. I know we ask God for things, but he's more interested in conforming us, shaping us, molding us, making us so that we could look like Jesus. And we want the reward yesterday, but the reward only comes after we go through the death experience, after we go through the dark night of the soul. So if you're sitting in this church this morning and you're discouraged thinking, God, why haven't you answered yet? I've been crying, I've been pleading, I've been begging, I keep asking, I keep asking. Do you think the judge of the earth does not know what he's doing? He's not only omnipotent, all-powerful, he is omniscient, all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. We need to trust him. And say, Father, you're at work in my life. I trust you, and I know you will be faithful. He that is faithful to endure to the end, that's when the blessing comes. You know, you may, you may have started out in your Christian walk, fire for the Lord, just a powerhouse for God, but now all the fires petered out, and you're just, you're just merely existing. There's a song that says it's not the first mile that's so important. It's the last mile when day is done. When Jesus comes again, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find within our hearts that same fervor that is not just the same, but by now it should have grown. It should have become more abundant and more overflowing. That's God's will and desire. The path of the justice as the light of day that grows brighter and brighter. The circumstances might get harder and harder, but because Jesus is walking with us, it is growing brighter and brighter. Are we inviting his presence into our lives, into our daily experience, so that when we face the trials and we face the difficulties, we don't cry in our soup, but we say, Jesus, I'm trusting you. You're with me. You're holding my hand. You're the good shepherd, and I know it's all working together for good. I'm leaning on you. How is Jesus able to endure? We read in Hebrews 12 and verse 2 from the Passion Translation, because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his. He endured the agony of the cross and he conquered its humiliation and now he sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. May God grace us with that same endurance. I need to 
run along here, the joy that was set before Jesus was truly bringing many sons to glory, but in verse 3, we, we see, as we've already alluded to, this reward was also his, that he sat down. There are two thoughts that we want to underscore as we look at this phrase, Jesus sat down. The first tells us that he completed the work that he was called to do. You know, when our work is being done, we're, we're standing, we're moving, we're grooving. But when we're finished, we look for the lounge, right? Then you could sit down after the task is completed and, re uh, and re then you can rest. And when the scripture says that Jesus sat down, it doesn't mean that he came to a place of inactivity. Rather, it demonstrates that what he was called to do was finished. Not 75% done, but 100% completely finished. What Father God required of Jesus was totally and absolutely complete. We spoke about the sacrifice of the Old Testament priest. There were no chairs in the temple where they did their sacrificing because their work was never done. It was repeated day after day after day, never finished. But that's why we're told in Hebrews 10 and verse 1, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things that were to come, not the good things in themselves. That's why the scripture says we need to leave the old and come into the new. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. But what happened when Jesus died on the cross? He said, it is finished. That word in the Greek is tetelestai, and it means the debt has been paid in full. There is nothing that you and I can do to contribute to making our salvation more complete. Some people are trying to do that. Oh, I, I need to go to church because if I go to church, then maybe I'll get into heaven. Going to church will never get you into heaven. The only thing that gets you into heaven is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ and embracing it with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. All the provision of the cross is ours today because Jesus said it is finished. The debt has been paid. We've been given all that we need. All that we need to be right with God. All that we need to be what we're supposed to be. All that we need to do what we're called to do. It's ours because of the cross. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, when fears and doubts come into your mind, is God really going to show me grace? I've repented for this sin umpteen times, and here I am, back again. I really thought I sincerely repented, but I just can't, I just, I, here I am again. If your heart is sincere, his grace has already paid the price. You don't need to pay penance. All you need to do is believe and accept the grace of God. I love what 
Robert Murray McShane says concerning this. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at the cross and 10 looks at Jesus Christ. You see, the devil has, has his, his insidious way of always putting us in front of the mirror and showing us, you call yourself a Christian? You failed God. You, you keep doing it over and over again. Take 10 looks at the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. In times like that, we need to stop and say, Jesus sat down. Jesus sat down. The job was done. It's finished. It's completed. There's nothing I can do but trust him for his grace. And his grace will be available to us. The second truth that we want to derive from this verse is not only completion, but now exaltation. Where was Jesus seated? At the right hand of the majesty on high. That term right hand is an important word in the Bible. It actually occurs 166 times. So it has really significant meaning. And the phrase in itself always speaks about rulership, authority, sovereignty, blessing, strength, honor, glory. That's what God the Father gave to Jesus. The disciples seemed to understand something about being seated at the right hand, didn't they? Because when they, when, when, when they heard that Jesus was bringing in a kingdom, James and John, and even their mom, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, let me sit on your right and my brother on the left. What happened to the other disciples? They were furious. Who do you think you are, James and John? We deserve that place. See, they didn't understand God either. But Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, a place of honor, a place of supreme, preeminent authority. And that, that verse is actually seen frequently in the scriptures in reference to Jesus. David in the Psalms prophesied it where God the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. Do you remember when Jesus spoke those very words? At that fake trial, at that religious trial where the super spiritual religious aristocracy came together because they were impassioned about, we've got to get this man to the cross. He was such a threat. He was so popular. People loved him. They were starting to leave the synagogue to follow Jesus, and they just couldn't take it. Jesus wouldn't speak, but then they said something to Jesus that he answered him and said, from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Well, he sealed his doom by saying those words. That was the death knell because they knew that the only one that could be seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven was the Messiah. And Jesus was just 
a man, not the Messiah. We read about Stephen when he was being martyred. He saw the exalted Christ. Where did he see him? He saw him standing at the right hand of God. Mark affirms the same in his gospel. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken back up into heaven. And what happened? He sat at the right hand of God. Now when we hear that, we think God had that beautiful throne prepared for Jesus. And he said, okay, Jesus, you did what I asked you to do. Now here's your throne. Be seated on it. But I, I don't believe this phrase means a literal throne. When Jesus ascended back into heaven as the glorified God-man, he was given that place of honor and authority that he had with the Father from before time began. It was his to have. He was being honored as the Son who did the will of the Father, accomplishing the redemption for all the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And he said, now, Son... You have absolute authority. Why did Jesus say, all power and authority is given to me? All authority under heaven. It's mine. The exalted Son of God. And the New Testament underscores that over and over again. Jesus took his place of authority in heaven. Paul says, God raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms. Where? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And then Peter says in his epistle, Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers all in submission to him. See, Jesus is exalted in heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But what else is he doing as he's seated in that place of authority? And I could just touch on this quickly. He becomes our great intercessor. See, the work of Jesus is still going on. Yeah, he completed what was required so that we could come to the Father and be one with God the Father and our life hid with Christ and God. Is, I mean, can, can you imagine? Your life is hid with Christ and God. You say, Pastor, you, you don't know what's coming against me. It's coming against you. It's coming against Christ. Can Christ handle it? He can handle it. You can handle it because your life is hid with Christ in God. Not something to get excited about. But to know the glorious truth that he in heaven is there interceding on our behalf. There are two powerful verses that I want to leave you with this morning. One is Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more how much more being reconciled shall we now be saved through his life? You know, as Christians, we, we, we glory in the cross. Jesus, you died for me. But the Bible says, if you were saved through his death, now that he's living, 
Jesus died to bring you salvation, but now in his, in his life, he's, he's living to give you an abundant life. He's giving to show you the glories of who he is and the power of God's spirit that is living in you so that you can live in victory and in blessing and in glory and in truth and in righteousness and in holiness. And again in verse, chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is there to condemn us? For Christ Jesus who died. More than that was raised to life. Now at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding for us. I just love when people tell me, Pastor, I'm praying for you. Because oh, how I know how much I need your prayers. But then I think of the words of Robert Mary McShane, if I could quote him again. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. Because the reality is, he is praying for me. He's praying for you right now. He's praying for you. Father, purify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Do you know as I'm preaching God's word this morning, this truth is to be sanctifying us. It's to be purifying us. It's to be setting us apart so that we can live holier lives, lives that are more pleasing to God. See, Jesus, and I close with this this morning, he's better than, he's preeminent over everyone and everything else. He's seated in the heavens interceding in our behalf because he's going to bring us to glory and not by the skin of our teeth. Not by the skin of the devil is lying to you if he's telling you, oh, you're so defeated and living for Jesus isn't worth it and you're trying to exercise faith. Why exercise faith? God isn't hearing your prayer. He's not doing what you're asking him to do. His word is true. He's not a man that he should lie. We can stake our lives on it. Let God be true. And every man a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. I want faith to arise in your heart today to say, God, I believe your word is true. What is it that you've been asking God for? God, I believe your word is true. You are Jehovah Rapha. You are my healer. You are my deliverer. You are my sanctifier. You are my baptizer. You are my provision. All that I need is in you. You paid the price. Listen to this promise. He not only intends us to bring us to heaven in glory, but this is the intention of God. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Whew. Did you hear that? The Father seated Jesus at his right hand, a place of honor. Jesus is saying, I want to honor you if you overcome. So you can't live just a flippant Christian life and think you're going to be seated with Jesus on the right hand. But if your heart is yes always to Jesus, 
If your heart is hungry, if your heart is pursuing, if your heart is going after God, you're going to be an overcomer and he's going to seat you down with him even as he overcame and sat down with his father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Let this truth enter into our hearts. Let it be an engrafted word that changes our very DNA, conforming us to the image of your son. We thank you that you're faithful and you are true. And as we commit to you, as we surrender to you, as we open up our hearts to you, you will do that good work in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for communion this morning,